0: Good afternoon, and welcome to the Leslie Marshall Show. My name is Ed Chung. I'm the Vice President for Criminal Justice Reform at the Center for American Progress. I'll be your guest host for the day, and we've got a great show lined up for you. So if you want to be part of the conversation, feel free to call in at 1 888 6 Leslie. That's 1 888 653 seven five four three you can also follow the show on twitter at leslie marshall and also you can follow me as well uh, at ed chung tweets that's e d c h u n g tweets lots of big news happening this week it seems like lots of big news happens every week in this administration the big uh, the biggest development of course is that yesterday senate republicans finally released their health care bill uh, and guess what? It's horrible. Uh, Republican senators basically took a very bad House bill, uh, which, if you remember, would insure 23 million fewer people than the Affordable Care Act. And then they asked themselves, how can we make this even worse? So in addition to getting rid of the individual and employer mandates, uh, they cut Medicaid drastically. They took away tax credits to offset costs for people buying insurance. It's like they took President Trump's comments that the House version was mean, 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 and then took that as a challenge to see if they can make it even worse. And guess what? They actually succeeded. Um, If you want to learn more about this, Leslie had a great show yesterday with my colleague, uh, Mara Kelsen. You could get to that show at uh, lesliemarshall.com and just click on the podcast tab there and uh, it's a great listen, so I encourage everyone to do that. Um, but today we're gonna be talking about another issue that's very timely, which is gun violence and gun violence prevention. It seems like a lifetime ago already, but it was just last week when a group of Republican legislators, members of Congress, and their staff were practicing for the annual congressional baseball game when a gunman opened fire on them in broad daylight in the morning hours at a public park. Uh, In Northern Virginia here, several people were injured, including Rep. Steve Scalise and two Capitol Police officers, Crystal Greiner and David Bailey. And we hope that all of those who were injured are on their way to a speedy recovery. Um, But the debate over guns and gun violence in our society continues to rage on. With me to discuss the issues today uh, is uh, Nico Bokor. She is the state legislative manager for Americans for Responsible Solutions. Welcome, Nico. Thank you. And joining Nico is Stasha Rhodes, Director of Advocacy for Guns and Crime Policy here at the Center for American Progress. Good to have you both here.
1: Thanks for having us.
0: So it seems like whenever we have one of these horrific events like the shooting at the congressional uh, baseball practice that now the country gets motivated and becomes uh, gun violence prevention is a topic of conversation. But it's something that also affects people's lives all around the country. And so, you know, we know that crime is down and violent crime is down, but there is that connection between violent crime and gun violence. So sh- give us kind of an overview. What is the prevalence of gun violence today? Stasha, we'll start with you.
1: Yeah, sure. So the GOP baseball shooting uh, is the 154th mass shooting this year. Uh, sadly, gun violence is now as American as baseball. Uh, the u.s murder rate is 25 times higher than any other developed nation Um, frankly gun violence is a public health crisis at this point we we lose 33,000 people a year to buy guns uh, and that's nearly 90 people a day Uh, in fact the morning of the baseball shooting i was getting dressed to attend an event in honor of the victims that were killed in orlando florida at the pulse nightclub uh, one year ago, and the nine African Americans that were killed two years ago uh, in Charleston, South Carolina. You know these shootings are happening far too often, uh, and we are losing far too many lives to gun violence.
0: Yeah, and so Nico, you do a lot of work in in states uh, and in localities around uh, the country. And so, what is what what are communities saying to you? What are um, w- what's the effect of this in communities all across the country?
2: Yeah, I think the um, the effect is, is really serious and really severe, and it's um, harming our communities and families. Um, we have to understand, I think, the problem, as Stasha said, um, we're losing 33,000 Americans every year. This is a very serious crisis in our country. Um, and then to be able to address that problem, we have to... Um, basically look at what opportunities there are. Um, We focus um, or I focus specifically on what types of policies will help and reduce gun violence. Um, And we work with leaders um, on the local level in states uh, to try to have the greatest impact we can in their communities. So, again, these are some
0: horrific incidents that capture the public's attention and the movement to Reduce and prevent gun violence prevention seems to take root, and then sometimes it fades off from the public's view. What is the reason that we can't sustain some of that momentum, and what are um, why is this such a continuing problem in in the United States?
1: You know, there are a number of reasons, uh, both why we can't sustain it, and and why we haven't been able to make serious head headway within the past 10 or 15 years, it's the NRA is a very influential gun lobby in America and they have created this narrative that if you support common sense gun laws, then you're anti-Second Amendment and that's totally not true. You can respect the Second Amendment and take action to keep guns out of the wrong hands. Um, In fact, many gun owners support common-sense gun measures like background checks or ensuring that domestic abusers can't own guns. The NRA leadership has taken its message further and further right, uh, and they have become more and more extreme. Simply put, they believe in guns anywhere and everywhere, And, and honestly, even Justice Scalia has said in the Heller decision that the Second Amendment isn't an unlimited right, that you can't keep and carry weapons, what any weapon whatsoever, in any manner whatsoever. And
0: the Heller decision was the one that basically affirmed uh, a person's right to carry, or at least in their home, that's right. uh, for, for protection purposes, um, uh, weapons. But I'm sorry, go ahead.
1: No, that's That's right. And so like, they have taken their message, their narrative, uh, and done a really good job at making it widespread um, and become more and more expre- extreme. And so one of the things that they often say, and I think right now we're in a very ironic space for them, is that... Uh, that it, the, the way to stop a bad guy with a gun is a good guy with a gun. And we've just seen recently uh, with the Philando Castile case that he uh, was a good guy who had a gun legally uh, but was murdered by the police and, and nothing from the NRA.
0: Yeah, and so is that Philando Castile, for uh, those of you who don't know, uh, he was. He is, a, he was a black man who was killed by uh, in a traffic encounter with a police officer. He was legally carrying a uh, firearm, and video from the uh, from the incident shows, or you could hear that he tells the officer that he's carrying. Usually, in situations like that, you would see people who are pro-gun rights to uh, come to the the person's defense and say that this is egregious. And so, but that's not happening now.
1: Yeah, I, I think that what happens is that this just highlights that the NRA leadership has become more and more extreme. And so it seems that it's not about, uh, the Second Amendment anymore for the NRA. There was a time when the NRA supported common sense gun laws and would have stood up for something like this, but now, in this day and age, in this very toxic political environment that we live in, the NRA is a part of maintaining this narrative, uh, and somehow, uh, black men with guns don't fit into that narrative.
0: And Nico, in your work in states, are you running up against kind of a power? This power. House lobby. Is it is it also in Congress, but also in states and localities as well?
2: Yeah, absolutely. We are definitely seeing the gun lobby in states, um, and they are very powerful. They're certainly very enthusiastic, but we're also seeing a lot of uh, success in pushing back against their agenda. Um, as Stasha said, they've gotten so extreme. Um, people do not support Uh, the kinds of policies that they want to enact, and we're seeing that um, legislatures, even uh, traditionally more um, conservative, gun-friendly legislatures, are just not interested in pursuing these really extreme agendas. Um, For example, in Florida this year, following the shooting at Fort Lauderdale Airport, uh, the gun lobby sought to expand the public places where guns could be carried, including in airports. Um, and local and national groups pushed back. Um, common sense prevailed, and uh, the gun lobby was unsuccessful in that effort.
0: And I think right after the congressional baseball shooting, too, we heard um, some calls from members of Congress to allow members of Congress to carry weapons where or carry firearms wherever they are as well. Um, one other thing that I've I've heard and you know to ask you all on uh, or about is that the the number of firearms that have been sold since Trump has been elected has actually decreased significantly as compared to what is in the previous uh previous administration. Is there any um truth to that?
2: Yeah, um so I don't actually know the numbers on that, but I you know, I think the overall mood would probably support that, right? I mean we are seeing that Um, When the gun lobby can push the narrative uh, that their guns are going to be taken away uh, by folks who are um, in positions of power, then they're able to sell more guns and really scare folks. Um, And right now we're seeing people pushing back against that um, in states and I think um, on the national level that will come as well.
0: Great. So we're going we're going to pause this discussion right now, and we're going to come back right after the break. Uh, For those of you who are on the phone, please hold, and we'll get back to your calls. This has been the Leslie Marshall Show, and I'm Ed Chung. Welcome back to the Leslie Marshall Show. I'm your guest host today, Ed Chung, and we're talking gun violence prevention with Stasha Rhodes from the Center for American Progress and Nico Bocour from Americans for Responsible Solutions. So at the Center for American Progress, we recently released a report on how the federal government can help with uh, reducing violence. And one of the things that was in the report was that uh, the Bureau of Alcohol, Tobacco, and Firearms uh, were very under-equipped in um, inspecting gun dealers. And so that was incredibly striking to me. It seemed like in a year it was only like 6 percent of gun dealers were um, were inspected by the ATF. But Nico, what other kinds of steps can uh, governments or can society take in order to help reduce gun violence? Uh,
2: I think keeping guns out of dangerous hands is um, the area where we uh, look to focus in a lot. Uh, obviously. Supporting background checks and closing the background checks loopholes in states as well as on the federal level and um, Making sure that domestic abusers don't have access to guns is a really important area um, The nexus between domestic violence and firearms is incredibly lethal um, And we are working in states and seeing a lot of success in five states in the past year uh, We've seen laws enacted um, to help keep guns out of the hands of abusers um, and these aren't just states that you um, are traditionally supportive of strong gun laws. Um, we're talking about Republican governors in Maryland and New Jersey um, and states like North Dakota, Tennessee, and Utah um, passing these kinds of bills.
0: And we have a call on line three, Ismael. Ismail, are you there? It's the Leslie Marshall show. Yes, thank
3: you so much for taking my call Mr. Shaw And then greeting to you all you guys. You know, I just have a couple ideas. I really think they're um, uh, declaring all kinds of the Public hazard will be a good idea. to Start. We also need to take a page from the tobacco um, uh, industry. The same way we approach the tobacco cigarettes, we should approach guns. And the last thing I wanted to say is that having each gun's insured, it will help in terms of the background check and making sure the guns at the right place and making sure that people use them responsibly. You know, and because this is this is becoming a, a health crisis, and yeah. and we have to vote attorney generals in. And basically, a similar approach to tobacco companies.
0: Yeah, thanks, Esmail. That's a great question. On the po- point about the connection between the uh, how to combat the gun industry versus the tobacco industry. Sasha, you have uh, experience in this.
1: Yeah, I think he makes a good point that it's it's absolutely a public health crisis similar to uh, the tobacco world. And, you know, the, the gun violence prevention space is moving in the same direction of success that the to- tobacco control advocates have seen over the past 50 years uh, because they were able to sort of utilize the groundswell of support that Americans felt Uh, And that same support is still here for for gun violence prevention. And so the gun violence prevention space is doing a great job at ensuring that we're able to show policymakers that there's support on the ground, that we're able to mobilize advocates to say enough is enough. And that's exactly how the tobacco world was able to make a difference.
0: Yeah, we have another call. Reggie on line one. Reggie, you're on the Leslie Marshall Show.
1: Happy Friday to you both. Uh, I would just like to know, do you think
4: that the the gun violence and Rhetoric from AM conservative hey, talk radio to coincide with each other or not? Do they have anything to do with each other or not? And so, how do we put an end or a stop to it once and for all?
0: Yeah. So the connection between the rhetoric uh, on the far right, and I think you mentioned talk radio, but uh, the connection between that and uh, kind of the gun program uh, movement. So a- any connections that you can see.
1: Yeah, I think what happens is uh, leadership in the NRA really stoke this extreme narrative uh, that any sort of common-sense gun laws is anti-Second Amendment, and that really works up a base. Um, I think that that's the wrong direction. It's obvious that common-sense gun laws are important. There are many gun owners that support common-sense gun laws, and I think the more we highlight that fact, the better we are.
0: So kind of to wrap this segment up, I wanted to connect here, what's going on with the gun violence prevention movement, as well as just a general activist uh, society that we've seen, especially under uh, this administration, um, and how much energy that you're seeing out there. And so Nico, in in your work in localities, is there the same movement and intensity in the gun violence prevention side? And and how can we harness some of that energy uh, to push and have sensible reforms?
2: Uh, I definitely do think that there is a lot of broad support and energy on our side of this issue in states, um, but I do think we need to continue to work and reach out and um, bring bring together the stakeholders on this issue, right? If we are talking about whether or not um, firearms should be on uh college campuses or in dorms we're talking about a lot of different groups that are going to be impacted by that And the local level we have to make sure those folks are speaking out um so the gun violence prevention community especially with our state work we're really reaching out to all the folks um to let them know that they they are real stakeholders in this issue and making sure we're helping to elevate their voice
0: Stasha, I'm going to give you the last word, actually.
2: Yeah, I just think that it's important
1: for uh, advocates on the ground, progressive advocates, to understand that you need to stay active in your local and state governments because this is a public health crisis that demands action at every level, uh, and so utilize that energy to help us stop and or at least reduce gun violence.
3: Well,
0: we really appreciate you being here for this discussion, this incredibly timely discussion that affects way too many people in this country. Nico Bucour from Americans for Responsible Solutions, Stasha Rhodes from the Center for American Progress, thanks for being here. We'll be back right after this break. You're listening to The Leslie Marshall Show. And welcome back to The Leslie Marshall Show. I'm Ed Chung from the Center for American Progress, sitting in for Leslie today. For those of you who want to join in on the conversation, the number here is 1 888 6 Leslie. That's 1 653 7543. So, one thing that didn't get much attention earlier this week was that the Department of Justice held a conference right outside D.C. here on how the federal government should address violent crime in cities across America. And they announced this plan to work with a number of cities to help reduce violence in their communities. But one of the most concerning aspects of what the Justice Department is trying to do is blatantly revive the war on drugs from the 1980s and 1990s. And with me today to discuss the crime uh, or the intersection between crime, uh, drugs, and what our society should do with these issues is David Kennedy, who is the director of the National Network for Safe Communities at John Jay College in New York City. Welcome to the show, David. And also joining us is Michael Collins, uh, deputy director of the Drug Policy Alliance here in uh, DC. Good to have you, Michael.
5: Hey, how you doing? Good to be here.
0: And David, are are you on with us? I am great thanks for being here and david you have been studying this particular issue for a number of years and i know the field has advanced significantly since the 1990s but we seem to be in a time that we're kind of reverting back to what was popular and in vogue uh, about 20 years ago you know what do we know now about this whole intersection between drugs and crime and violence that we didn't know back then?
6: Well, we know a lot. Um, and you, you led off with exactly the, the, the right highlight, which is the the DOJ's eagerness to return to what really looks like the war on drugs and, and a position that says we should punish as, as much and as hard as we can. And it worked so well during the crack epidemic, I don't know why we wouldn't do it again. Um, (laughs) And so we know a lot of things. And and the most important thing we know is that we we as a nation have never made any headway on drug epidemics through heavy-duty law enforcement. It doesn't matter how many drug dealers you lock up or how long you lock them up for; um, they get replaced. And we've had no success in using any any kind of enforcement at at the source level. We haven't done anything about the the cartels or those networks. Enforcement can't keep drugs out of the country. Uh, once they're in the country, we don't have any luck at using enforcement to keep them out of our cities, and we've never been able to use enforcement to get rid of the gangs and networks that distribute them at, at the street level. And generations of drug enforcement have brought us mass incarceration and um, more, avail- more available and pure narcotics. So like I say, I don't know why we wouldn't try it again.
0: So what are the types of strategies now, though, that you're implementing um, that seem to seem to have uh, an effect um, that does not rely only on enforcement, but then goes beyond that and kind of has a much more comprehensive approach? What, what's
6: correctly motivating the administration is the concern about violence, and there, there has been an uptick in some cities around violence. That's absolutely right. It's not nearly as pervasive as they're making it out to be, but it's it's real. And in a, a lot of urban communities, especially, we, we shouldn't be worried about an increase. We should be worried about the, the high levels of violence those communities have always had. And the the fact about that, and it's, it's real science now, is that that kind of violence is driven by a very, very small number of extreme people. There's often an association with drugs. So those sorts of folks are often in gangs and drug crews and that kind of thing. The violence itself is really not about the drug trade. The violence is overwhelmingly personal and beef and back and forth retaliation and that sort of thing. And those those groups and the the really at-risk people in them are pretty readily identifiable. And when, when communities and law enforcement and cities get together, identify those folks and focus on them in a very, very strategic way with the right kind of law enforcement, especially with reaching out to them and letting them know they're being watched and what their legal risks are, with community engagement and with the right kind of social services, uh, cities can do a lot about
0: violence. So we're talking here about the Justice Department's new war on drugs on the Leslie Marshall Show. The number here 653 1-888-653-7543 if you'd like to join the conversation. Michael Collins from the Drug Policy Alliance. There's been a re-emphasis um, or, or a new emphasis, if you will, on um the different kinds of uh drugs that are out there now and different variations synthetic drugs um what is what are synthetics what is the new uh new new drugs or new forms of drugs like fentanyl that is really seeming to animate a lot of the uh heroin and other opioid epidemic issues that we have
5: yeah so it's a good question you know fentanyl essentially is, is a very good example of a synthetic drug and you know, historically heroin has been produced in you know the fields of Afghanistan or, or Mexico and through opium and, in, in, and through a plant now what we're seeing is um, you know a rise in a number of labs in places like China and also in Mexico where they produce essentially a synthetic alternative to heroin um, it's a chemically altered drug it uh, is produced in a lab And it's then added to heroin um, and and brought into the country. And it makes the heroin far more potent. So drug sellers like that, drug users like that. The problem is that it's um, behind a lot of uh, overdose deaths. You know, people are taking um, heroin with this fentanyl-laced heroin and and therefore um, not realising how potent it is and overdosing. And a, a lot of folks believe that you know, fentanyl is behind behind the rise of um, the rise in, in in overdose deaths in the country. And on top of that, you know, um, people are producing sort of alternatives to synthetic, sort of chemically altered versions of fentanyl itself, and making that even more powerful. And so it's just a real challenge from a drug policy point of view in terms of like how to stop overdose deaths.
0: So whenever you have those challenges, I think one, and you see the you know the number of people that are dying from this, Congress is starting to consider options. Of how they, if should do it, something, if anything, pass legislation, and uh, are there things that are on on the horizon that Congress is considering? And what are your views on that?
5: Yeah, I think um, policymakers uh, and members of Congress are often, you know, very lazy when it comes to ideas around how to to combat drugs. And what we see often is, you know, a new drug arrives in the scene. There's a lot of media hysteria around it. Congress and legislators across the country, even at the state level, are forced to act. And basically they just dust off the old drug war playbook and and increase sentences and enhance penalties. And we're sort of seeing that now develop in Congress. You know, Jeff Sessions is definitely a part of that. He's spoken about drugs like fentanyl and the danger. And we're seeing um, legislation introduced and potentially moving in Congress that would Um, you know, increase penalties for synthetic drugs like fentanyl that would um, expand the penalties that would give the Attorney General in this case, Jeff Sessions, broad authority to decide when a drug is scheduled and what penalties apply. And I think fundamentally there's a big problem with giving the Attorney General broad authority to decide which drugs are scheduled and which penalties apply. You know, really there should be public health input, which is the traditional scheduling process. There should also be strong input from Congress. You know, Congress makes the law Law enforcement enforce the law. Um, so, I think like this is the wrong approach, and really, we've tried to move away from you know the incarceration only approach to drugs and, and move more towards public health and treatment. And so, it's disappointing when these new drugs arrive in the scene, and, and people just take out the old drug war playbook and, and, and use that.
0: We're talking with Michael Collins and David Kennedy on the issue of drugs and um, the epidemic that is happening around the country on opioids. And David, when we're talking about anything that deals with public safety, policing, drugs, criminal justice, the issue of race is always front and center because the impact of communities have historically been black and brown. But the current opioid crisis is affecting a much broader population. And so because we this this crisis is affecting white populations, both rural, uh, suburban, middle class, is there going to be any kind of change in the way that the nation approaches this particular crisis compared to the one twenty, thirty years ago?
6: Well M- Michael's exactly right in in noting that, that the drug war has not been driven ever by frontline law enforcement it's been driven by politicians and the, the policies and legislation that they set. If you're close to frontline law enforcement, one of the really interesting things over the past thirty years or so is the way that those folks have learned that drug war kind of drug enforcement is pointless um cops have been saying forever we can't arrest our way out of this and they're they're there at at the coal face, and they know that's true leadership has gotten really smart about this um you, you hear police chiefs in big cities saying things like i'm done chasing the kilo ferry right by, by which they mean they the. They're not standing any, by any more tables full of drugs and guns and money, knowing that it makes no difference on the street, and they will say flat out that you know violence is a, a law enforcement issue, but drug addiction is a public health issue, and. Uh, police are taking a lot of heat these days because they are in fact treating the opioid epidemic differently than they did the crack epidemic and it, it's, it's very easy to look at that and say well crack was in black neighborhoods and so it was a prison problem and, and opiate are in white neighborhoods and so it's a public health problem. And there's some of that, but it's also not doing the cops enough credit because they have learned their lesson on this. And what you see them doing is making sure that their frontline officers have the opiate antagonists so that they can save people in overdoses. They're thinking about things like safe injection sites. They're thinking about moving treatment directly into jail and diversion. Um, They're really not in a drug war frame
0: of mind. So... When you're uh, working with these police departments, what are the other types of things that they're doing in addition to diversion that is really looking to approach public safety in a different kind of way? But the.
6: the the better folks in policing have become really focused on what, what they and and the academics call legitimacy. And it's, it's a simple but absolutely fundamental idea, which is that you, you cannot police a community effectively if they don't trust you and think that your heart and mind are in the right place. And one of the horrible consequences of the drug war Um, and things like zero-tolerance policing was that it it demonized whole neighborhoods. There was a a virtue for a lot of years of thinking that we should do as as much draconian enforcement as we possibly can. Stop and frisk and zero-tolerance basically said these entire neighborhoods are potentially felonious and we're going to treat them that way. It alienated those neighborhoods. It saturated them with men with criminal records whose lives will never be right. And police have learned that you you can't do anything more than occupy a neighborhood like that. You can never work with it. They will never trust you. They won't give you information. They won't respect you. They won't respect the law. And to kind of go back to a couple of points we've hit already, um, Good cops don't want to do that kind of work anymore. They have learned that the neighborhood is not dangerous. There's a small number of high-risk people in it. And they're really trying to focus as much as possible on those high-risk folks, and with them often not only through enforcement, and do as little unintended harm to the rest of the community as they can manage. And some of them are even talking really frankly about race and reconciliation and um, the history of the police and in the original racial sin of, of the nation and slavery and all that kind of thing, The the good people are in a pretty remarkable place.
0: So we have a call on uh, line two, Dean from Buffalo. Dean, you're on with the Leslie Marshall show.
4: All right. Uh, good afternoon. Thanks for taking my call. Um, I just want to say that um, all police officers should have to wear body cameras because it, If you're wearing a a body camera, um, you're showing the uh, department or the powers that be everything that's going on. I mean, you can't hide in plain sight, as it were, Um, and that really helps with accountability. Also, they need to deregulize non-serious drugs like marijuana because um, marijuana really doesn't or from what I've heard doesn't really do anything to you it's a yeah it's a high-end narcotics that do
0: yeah Dean thanks for the call Michael on the second part of that question in terms of marijuana um, your thoughts on on what society should do with that
5: yeah I mean it's, it's a very good point I mean I think we talked about what's changed over the last like 20 30 years in the u.s you know one has been you know a loosening of drug laws especially as it relates to marijuana you now have eight states plus washington dc voting to legalize marijuana you have over i think it's like 30 states now that have medical marijuana and i think you know what we've seen there is you know with marijuana legalization like the sky hasn't fallen um you know life goes on um and, and and look there are definitely challenges around marijuana legalization especially in the public health realm but you know from a criminal justice point of view it's definitely a step in the right direction the number of law enforcement that you know, start off um, interactions with it, inter- interactions with individuals as a result of, you know, the smell of marijuana or possession of marijuana. Stop and frisk; those kind of policies have been very much linked with marijuana prohibition. So, the legalization of marijuana is definitely a step in the right direction.
0: And I would really want to get into this whole conversation of body-worn cameras and well, how police should utilize them, but I think we're running up out of time. My thanks to Michael Collins from the Drug Policy Alliance and David Kennedy from the, from the National Network for Safe Communities at John Jay College. Thanks to both of you being on, and we will be right back. This is the Leslie Marshall Show. I'm your guest host for today, Ed Chung. And welcome back. This is the Leslie Marshall Show. I'm Ed Chung, and we have joining us now Patrick Gavin. Patrick health care all the time. Uh, we have some news about Senator Heller.
3: That's right. The Nevada Republican uh, just announced that he would not support the Republican health care bill in its current form, which I, I believe brings the number to five Republican senators who have come out against it. Uh, the question going forward, especially as we head into next week, uh, is whether or not that number gets bigger or smaller. There's some indication that, you know, more than likely at least a couple of folks will, I think, in fact, end up supporting the bill as long as there's little tweaks made here and there. Uh, I think Rand Paul is probably permanently against it. Dean Heller was Senator pretty staunchly against it as well, but said that he would be open to changes. So the real question is going to be whether or not these four or five senators actually represent a larger constituency within the Republican Party in the Senate, or if, in fact, they can be slowly picked off one by one by, uh, by Mitch McConnell in order to ensure passage.
0: So in other news, um, progressives uh, had a bitter defeat in Georgia in a congressional race, but there are other races that are coming up, especially for governor. Uh, there's a big one uh, right close he- to here, which is in Virginia. Some word about some high-profile people looking to jump into that uh, race, into campaign?
3: That's right. Barack Obama is going to make his first uh, political re- uh, return to electoral politics by campaigning on behalf of the Democratic candidate in that race, Ralph uh, Northam. Uh, I think partially this is uh, part of Obama's effort to try to stem some of the bleeding that Democrats have seen in recent elections.
0: Great. Thanks, Patrick. Appreciate that update. Um, just so for everybody who's listening, we want to just reemphasize how important it is for you to get engaged into this uh, healthcare bill process uh, the senate is really the last stop here the last bulwark and if the senate passes this um, it is going to become law again just the devastation that we're talking about from this health care bill where you have The House bill, which was better in some ways, if you will, and I don't want to characterize that and use that characterization in any other kind in any other context, but um, this horrible bill uh, will put 20-some million people uh, without insurance. Um, We have a CBO score that's coming out next week. There is some concern that there were tweaks into this Senate bill that um, is trying to make the score look a little bit better, but. Don't don't be fooled by that. This is going to affect a lot of people in a really bad way. And so, for those of you who want to get more information on this, just make sure that we're talking uh, that you know the information. Uh, there's a Trump uh, Care Toolkit um, if you want to get some more information, and you can find that at www.TrumpCareToolkit.com. Uh, Dot org. Uh, so make sure that you get involved and that you know about what's in this bill. It's going to take some effort, but really, really important. And just to leave you off with a few words, remember, President Trump said these bills are mean, mean, mean. And we'll take him at his word for that. This is The Leslie Marshall Show. I'm Ed Chung sitting in today. It's been real fun. So we hope to hear you soon next time and tune in next week again for The Leslie Marshall Show.